and welcome back to Real Clear with Dr. Klein, the crossroads of politics and psychology. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Welcome back to Real Clear, folks. I am here again with Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State University. I got that right this time, not University of Kentucky. And he's joining us again. He might do so on a regular basis. We'll see. We're kind of playing it out. And he also is the co-host of the Cut the Bull podcast, which I suggest you tune into. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of nonsense tonight and happenings in our word, our world, that is. Professor, what's on your mind this week in your keen political analysis? Where are we with the craziness and... What do you have in store for tonight's topics? I have some of my own. Yeah, we've we've seen a lot of uh, nuttiness going on in in the world around D.C., definitely. I mean, the thing that sticks out to me is the uh, Speaker of the House illogically being uh, being knocked down from that position. I mean, that's that's clearly that's the clear number mm. one from my end. But I mean, there, there are a range of other things along those lines. We've, we've seen a lot of entertaining political stuff uh, recently in general. So I'm, I'm more than glad to hash through all of it. Along with some, um, along with some more serious things. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I think we talked about. It looks like Joe Biden's going to build the wall, quote unquote. He's approving. Today he just decided uh, Trump's plan to build the border wall is a great idea. What do you make of this? Uh, I mean, I think we've both written about how most human male leaders are amoral sociopaths. It's actually a great advantage. I mean, I don't think any of them care about anything other than getting right. elected and staying in power. So, I mean, that that's what I think about it. I think it makes sense, given the, the surge in recent illegal immigration, to do what he's doing. And so I think he's going to he's going to move forward and do that. I think it's it's that simple. Uh, another trend is, in terms of like a backup story is all, and this I view this as tragic. I'm not making fun of this online as some of my uh, my casual friends are, but this trend toward very prominent left wing activists getting killed or robbed. Mm. So, I mean, we saw Pava Dupain, a well known tech CEO in uh, I believe Philly, but was was Gun killed down. by a lunatic that broke into her house under one of the specific bail reform, early release uh, programs that the left in that city had really backed. We saw this guy, Carson from the Pergs, the activist group that a lot of people had canvassed for in college. And this was a tragic story and trying to defend his girlfriend. So it was stabbed by a complete nut in right. uh, the Bedford Syverson district of New York. And we saw a congressman get carjacked. I mean, he's not the, he's not the craziest, you know, Antifa type, but a uh, Henry Quellar is definitely a partisan Democrat got jacked in DC. Right outside of his home, right? Yeah. Someone ran up to him at the Thule in the Naval Yards building and took his car. I mean, and that, that again, he's, he's not a defund the police guy, but he's a bail reform guy and so on down the line. So there, there is a real question, all the schadenfreude aside of, will this make people more likely to actually support policies like funding armed police officers and we'll have to see most of the reaction i've seen so far from the political left is people uh, nathan robinson and i had a lengthy argument about this on twitter but people saying you know you fool mm-hmm. crime is going to occur no matter what we're only seeing a 30 percent uptick these things are unrelated so that's, you, that's an interesting topic did you catch the story of the uh, former vice chair 
of the Democrat Party in Minnesota who was carjacked outside of her home in her driveway in front of her kids, broken leg, contused head. And she was on the bullhorn in 2020 saying, defund the police. We can do this now. I mean, she was rather arrogant about it, frankly. And now she almost has a political amnestic disorder where she doesn't remember her own actions. And she's uh, trumpeting, reforming in the police system and going and getting these terrible people who just carjacked her. I mean... Yeah, I mean, that was almost the caricature of how do you get a liberal to vote correctly? You rob them like that old (laughs) Ronald Reagan joke. I mean, it's yeah, she was one of the biggest and this wasn't like Quaylar where, okay, he's a little to the left of me or you, but he's got competent tax policy. Uh Yeah, she was an open BLM activist marching in the shirt with the sleeves cut off, waving signs. And the exact policy that she supported uh, led to her, unfortunately, like you said, being robbed in front of her kids. And you don't ever want that to happen, especially if this extends into rape and murder and so on. But like, yes, of course, if you defund the police in sizable cities like Minneapolis or actually what happened primarily was that the police pulled back on their stop rate. Like even if the budget was kept up, cops were arresting fewer people, uh, then that's going to have consequences. And some of those consequences are going to involve people getting hurt. Yeah, uh, my smirk at this story is not pleasure out of her being harmed in any way. It's almost a reaction to the absurdism that is predominating our life these days. I just read a story in the Canadian, um, I believe it was in some branch of the Canadian government that is advocating for um, anti, let me see if I can pull this up here. It's so striking as to be, I I almost can't even parrot it. I have to pull up the real story. Um, Sanism is apparently a thing, Will. Okay, Sanism. And this is... um, cultivating space for madness and mad educators. Okay, let me read the abstract. This article engages with critical questions regarding the exclusion and stigmatization of early childhood educators who experience madness and the presence slash absence of madness in early learning settings. Through a mad studies analysis, whatever the hell that is, we argue for more critical conversations challenging the the pathologization of madness and educators who openly live with mental illness or identify as mad. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I identify as mad. Most people would say that that's true. Um, Mad, cool. (laughs) I wonder. So the question is oft said these, uh, presented these days, perhaps too frequently. Are we in some sort of a decline of our national sanity? Um, it seems to me, yes, that's a sort of lazy outcome that people could land on and say, well, look at the disintegration of Rome and so forth. And it's not as though we have the vandals uh, coming up, although we do have a porous border. Um, at the same time, you see levels of disintegration in our political, psychological and, and civic psychological functioning everywhere. I mean, I want to get to you with uh, with the ousting of Kevin McCarthy this past week. That was eight people who hijacked an entire party. Um, are they vandals destroying the Roman Empire? We've got um, 7.9 million people who just roved across our southern border and who I kind of believe the Pennsylvania and National Democrats would like to matriculate into voters in that swing state because they passed in the dead of night a driver's license matriculation into voter ID law and simultaneously remove the restrictions to get an, I, a, an ID for illegal aliens so they can get a driver's license. I mean, I don't think that's conspiracy. I think that's 
you know, connect the dots. Um, and we have part of the country who believe in Democrats eating babies in the basement of a pizzeria. Um, you know, you could almost go on an endless rove of the various ways in which we have a national disintegration of our collective functioning. And uh, is this week just a brazen example of, of all of those things culminating into one condensed period of time? I mean, I, I think there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now, but no, I, I don't think I had this conversation on uh, social media today, actually, in between prepping an article for National Review. But I mean, no, I, I don't think the analogies to the fall of Rome or to the USA collapse or, the, or claims that the USA is collapsing are very plausible. I mean, like in political science, if I actually look at probably the 10 main indicators of civilizational health, I mean, you know, equivalent rights for women and minorities, although it necessarily lead with that one, but compared to like 1955 or 64 or years we're often told to be very nostalgic about a uh, level of technology. I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, Roman tech began to decline in the late empire. You could see the concrete getting worse. And there's that famous old poem, like, I'll throw my broken sword in the heather and take a barbarian bride, like saying that being a frontier Roman was no different from being a savage by the end. Centurion didn't know how to read. Our tech level is improving. GDP level is improving. I mean, one of the reasons we have all these damned immigrants that we're not inviting into the country, no offense to each individual, guys, that people want to come here. And they're coming here, by the way, from other civilized countries. Like, now we should still just throw them in the van and deport them if they are not coming legally. But you're talking about, like, the Mexican middle class. Um, you're talking about people from China, India. Not the caravans of 2000 that come across the border, but the actual people that are overstaying their visas and adding to those numbers. I mean, those would be the three largest groups. So I, I don't think when you actually take what's going on now, military strength, is that declining or increasing? We're working on a new hydrogen bomb weapon, which I, I don't think we need to. But like that, that's not you can't make the swords anymore. I, I don't think that society is ending right now. I think that a very prosperous society is dealing with one of the two problems that have always affected civilizations at their peak, actually uh, decadence within the elite, as opposed to the mm -hmm. other one, barbarians on the border. Societies in decline actually don't have that much time for decadence. Decline would be a situation where immigrants from El Salvador, Somalia, or Moldova, wanted to hit, make fun of all major races there, had come in in very large numbers and had proven unable to assimilate, which I'm not even sure would happen. But we're attempting to run the formerly great institutions of this country. Like that's decline, where you have people squatting in the Roman Forum that no longer know how to make concrete that are taking out the marble bricks to build pigsties. Like, no, I don't think we're at that level. I think that we're a very successful prime years country. But because of that, we have a lot of people that are lazy, drug-addled perverts. And one of our ideas is that everyone should have an equivalent platform. So if you say, I'm not a lazy, drug-addled pervert, you son of a bitch, you're being ableist and sanest. There's a chunk of people now that are going to listen to you. Ableist and sanest, right. Sanest. Um, as a psychologist, when I hear someone utter the word sanest, I think I'm done. There's no more role for me in society. But let me push back against something you just said. Um, the taking of the marble and making pig pigsties and so forth. Um, I wonder if we are seeing that, but not in concrete terms. Donald Trump. Oh. This, yeah. Uh, Donald Trump this past week said something so ridiculous and actually authoritarian that it is striking. Um, he uh, said that when he assumes power, he's going to go after the media. 
is going to investigate the media and uh, mobilize the executive branch to to go after the media who he's angry at, basically, for their mischievous, uh, uh, bad reporting of the news and so forth. And most of his followers, uh, uh, predictably, are are unwilling to see just how ridiculous this is. I mean, it's actually something. It's one of the first things an authoritarian dictatorship does is dismantle the free press. And, um, you know, so does that not represent some sort of a um, taking of the marble and using it for bad purposes? Well, no, actually, the analogy with Trump or Biden, if either man goes crazy, would be to, again, peak years societies transitioning from republics to empires. I mean, so the classic, like, I remember when Donald Trump was charged with uh, the first of his four felonies and 91 uh, source indictments. A lot of people online were saying, just cross the Rubicon, meaning like a lot of the military supports you. You're running for president. Just say, no, fuck you and ignore the charges. Don't go to Georgia. Don't put on handcuffs. I mean, possibly rebel. And Trump, first of all, it's not going to work in America, but to, I suppose, his credit, Trump said, no, I'm not going to do anything of the kind. I'm going to show up for each of these cases. He took his mugshot, which became the most famous picture in past decade American politics. He nailed so, it, by the way. I, yeah, he, he got an exactly perfect expression there. I would have probably done the Jenna Ellis and just laughed, knowing like <laughs> in, in a George, a George jury is probably not going to convict me. These charges are horseshit. Like, there are real charges against Trump, like taking our Iran war plans and boasting about them with female Washington Post reporters. But this this sort of crap is not serious. Um, but no, he went down there and he looked very angry. Like, he looked like a guy that was going to run for president again and has a 50% chance of winning and is going to lock up a lot of these people. And I think that there are people on the left that are very scared of that. For me, the thing with Trump is that the only difference between Trump and another sociopathic male leader like Biden or Gavin Newsom is that Trump will say what he's going to do out loud and challenge the opponent to a chess match. Like, I'm going to arrest or harass members of your political branch's media. That's something that's been going on for a decade. I mean, like, I wrote one of the pieces on the Twitter files. It was my first National Review article. Like, I know Mike Schellenberger and some of those people, and I, I saw, like, a lot of what came out. And it was very obvious. Like, I think it was Charlie Kirk's, uh, you know, now X page that had all those crazy strikes on it where like he couldn't even see what was wrong with his page, but his flow of uh, content reception had been diminished by like 95%, which we, I mean, we're both podcasters, media types to some extent. You recognize what that would do to you. Like that's been going on at the level of like the senior management at X, at the level in all probability, the FBI and the CIA for decades. I mean, I, I don't think I'm overstating right. the case here. So Trump is just saying like, okay, if you want to play those games, I'm going to have branches of the government minimize your reach, if not arrest some of your executives. And you don't see this as maybe a crumbling of the pillars altogether at once. You know, Biden and, and, the, and the Democrat Party are clearly mobilizing uh, branches of the investigative agencies in our country to, um, to affect our politics. That's fairly clear. And um, it's terrifying. And maybe it's been going on for a long time. Um, but it's that, um, that's the thing. You know, recently become more... Um, visible to us all, perhaps. And you're saying that maybe Trump is just in his own way uh, making visible the same kind of politics, that this is just more of the same. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. 
There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money. And so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. Yeah, I I think a key point that you just made there or key sentences making more visible. I mean, like if you actually look at declassified U.S. documents about what the feds were doing 50 years ago, it was far worse than what they're doing now. I mean, during the COINTELPRO investigation, I mean, they were setting Martin Luther King up with prostitutes and this sort of thing, allegedly, allegedly. But I mean, they were certainly following the man around, wiretapping his hotel room. I mean, there are serious allegations that one of our intelligence agencies participated in the killing of Kennedy. I'm not an expert. I don't have any comments on that. But like they're this is not something novel. I mean, under Barack Obama, I mean, I recall the harassment of Dinesh D'Souza, who at the time was probably the most effective conservative filmmaker. Daily Wire hadn't really started yet. But I mean, he made a film called, I think, The Roots of Obama's Rage, which is still the number three documentary in the USA. And he was subsequently audited by the IRS, like the very next day. Immediately afterward, I mean, there was a full audit of the man. I mean, and followed by another somewhat related criminal charge, but he'd given like $3,000 instead of $2,000 to his boy's political campaign. A friend was running for a California senator, some such. So he wrote a check and then he wrote a check for his wife, but like in his hand or like he gave her the money. I, I don't recall every detail of the case, but it's, it's exactly at this level. And he was sentenced to prison, like actual booty house prison for a year. Apparently did pretty well. He's a witty little guy. But I mean, like that kind of stuff has been going on for decades. I mean, from MLK over here to D'Souza over here. I think Mm -hmm. that what we're seeing right now with a free Twitter, Zuckerberg pulling back a little on Facebook, real conservative media, the DW and so on, whatever you might think of them. I think what you're seeing phones in everyone's pocket. What you're seeing is more exposure of what's been going on than something totally new. I, like, I genuinely believe that, that you now, if you're a federal agent and you kick down someone's door and arrest them for being either the feminist or the evangelical at an abortion rally, there's going to be a kid hiding on the stairs filming that. And so right. you get this content like the movie Police State, where you have these horrible videos. But a, a video of the feds and the Black Panthers massacring each other in the 70s would be much, much worse. There just was no video. Like, neither group was going to shoot if you were toting a camera and running down the street. Right. (laughs) And so the panopticon of our world right now is overwhelming for us. Only God can be omniscient, and social media has made us God's eyes of of the world ourselves. It's overwhelming for us. Let's get down to the specifics of this past week. We've got Trump on trial. I mean, that was a spectacle. People should go to the video and watch the cameras go into the courtroom and so forth. It is just striking. Uh, uh, Shithead Steve on uh, on Instagram uh, synced it to the office uh, narrative, and it really <laughs> flows quite well. Um, and you had Letitia James sitting in the back as they're filming Trump at the table, uh, giving him this political pageantry like face where she's this concerned citizen and also disappointed uh, leader, uh, you know, looking at our fallen angel on the right and so forth. Uh, it was it really, uh, it was pathetic, frankly. Uh, And then you have this um, uh, attorney on the other side laughing in a cattly manner with her colleague. And then you've got the judge sitting there uh, pretending that this is some kind of a goober parade. And meanwhile, an unprecedented happening in American history is unfolding before our very eyes. There has never been a president in American history who has undergone trial in this manner or who has ever been convicted. As far as I know, is that right? 
Yeah, the only previous uh, formal criminal charge against a president, because I mean, Nixon was, uh, he was pardoned, there were never formal proceedings brought, as I understand, was against General Grant a few years after he left office for being drunk and racing his horses down a street in D.C. Just one of those <laughs> random that. things I looked up. I mean, he, he, he was a great guy, but he liked the sauce and he had these fancy horses. Yeah. He'd been a cavalry commander. So the apparently a cop did the equivalent of pulling him over and you have the president holding a sword sitting in the like the bucket seat and he said quote these horses are thoroughbreds i can't restrain these goddamn animals <laughs> and so the cop told him okay this is a misdemeanor you've got to drive to the station just report yourself honestly sir and grant actually did so there there hasn't been a previous arrest of a president for a crime serious enough to notice but it's it's never been at this level and these charges i mean they're they're transparently polit- like my opinion on most people that are substantially more successful than me is that they're crooks and that's kind of a joke, but it's also sort of, I mean, you know, my friend group's pretty aggressive. So like if you're at two times that level and you're worth $30 million, like have you done some shit? Like were there some grandmothers bribed to leave their home so you could build that subdivision? Maybe. Dude, you're class conscious. Look at you. I actually am, I actually am pretty class conscious. Like I grew up in a, not the, well, not kind of the hood, but just a working class neighborhood, heavily Hispanic. Who of us aren't class conscious? I mean, we all are. It's part of human nature. Of course. Yeah. No, that I think it's quite right. But I mean, like in my case, I'm actually very specifically pro working class on some issues. And it's the thing that I agree with the left on. Like, I'm a big fan of private sector unions. I mean, I think, you know, the old joke, if Frenchmen can do it, there's no reason we couldn't have better health care. So on down the line. Um, and this is one of those Lost things. All my where French I, listeners just now. Yeah. That, <laughs> I don't know. They, I don't there's know. How many two. There's two. Like, there's two of them. But anyways. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> one will stick around. Yeah. No, no hate for the French, but um, I think that there definitely is a pattern. Uh, for example, the group, as you probably know, that has the highest rate of crime when people are anonymously asked after the poor is the rich. I mean, if you look at stock fraud, wife beating, hard drug, very hard drugs, this kind of thing. So, I mean, I, I think the point that I'm making though is I think that there are a lot of wealthy crooks out there, and that's not disputed in either of our fields. But with things like the Russell brand, Donald Trump, Elon Musk, I could go on and on and on and on, Dinesh D'Souza, charges, it's obvious that these are hyper-political, where, I mean, something's been known about someone for a very long time. Trump was a sketchy, funny businessman who kind of skirted the edges, once had a lawyer nicknamed Mandrake the Magician, I think Manny Katzenstein. No way. That's the guarantee. That's a fact. But um, maybe it was an accountant, though. But again, if your accountant is nicknamed the Magician, like something's going on, you know. But no one ever cared that's really common in New York real estate, which is a market that's twice as large and shady even as Chicago real estate. And now all of a sudden, the guy is a former president who's involved in some political beefs, and they're digging up all this crap, like fraud charges against right. the Trump organization from 15 years ago. That that sort of pure politics, I think, is obviously what it is. Um, I don't think Trump's response to it is any more political than what his opponents are doing. What has changed now, kind of getting getting back to my original point in finishing, is that mm-hmm. there are there are cameras in the courtroom, which used to be viewed, I trained as a lawyer uh, before my PhD, it used to be viewed as absolutely insane, plebeian. You know, everyone has a phone, camera on their phone, so we were right. able to film Trump driving through the hood intentionally in Atlanta to get to the courthouse. So you see all this shit, and you start thinking, well, the world is really screwed up. But it was usually worse. It was worse for most of history. Absolutely. So... In Georgia, he's being tried on racketeering. And for people's reference, just as a basic theater here, and you you fill it in, you've got the legal background. As -hmm. far as I understand, nothing he did down there is in and of itself a crime. But taken all together, 
it represents a theater of crime. Is that basically right? Yeah, the way uh, a rapper buddy of mine put it in one of my classes, actually, a former student who um, was, I think, came by to, anyway, was like sort of auditing the class, waiting for some paperwork. But uh, he his comment was just the young Jeezy line, Trump got hit with the Rico. And it was like they really brought a formal uh, racketeering influenced and corrupt organizations uh, case against him. The thing with Rico, which I do remember pretty well from law school and from some investigations for clients and so on, is that any participation in what's been dubbed by a grand jury or a judge as an organized criminal enterprise can be treated as a crime. So Rico was developed to go after the Italian-American mafia. Right. And the mob was extremely well organized. Like the Don wasn't going to call some low-level leg breaker and say, hey, go to Giuseppe's bar and handle that for me. The Don would say, I've got a problem with a man. And, you know, the Capo di regime would say, well, which man? And this would be passed all the way down the ladder. And no one would really, except for the leg breaker, do much of anything illegal. You'd hand a piece of paper with an exact address to that guy's boss and so on. And the way Rico statues were written was to make any action that was part of the thread that ended with 16 pairs of legs broken illegal. So the argument, as I understand, is that Trump was trying to steal the election. And because he was trying to steal the election, any act in furtherance of that, for example, calling a Georgia official and asking, can you please find me some of these votes, which really just means do a recount. But that is now illegal. So Trump is facing pretty serious penalties as a result of, I think, a 27 count RICO indictment. I mean, he theoretically could go to jail for probably easily the rest of his life. I said a, a few months ago, maybe a month ago that I thought none of that was really geared towards imprisoning him. I mean, how do you imprison a man who's entitled to Secret Service the rest of his life? It's just you know, hard to imagine. But that they were going to use that because I believe part of the federal code is that if you're convicted on a racketeering charge, you cannot hold public office in the United States. And no sooner than I recorded that episode a few months ago, there were initiatives in Colorado and other states and now California to try to get his name removed from the ballot based on that exact ground. And so, I mean, that's that's an obvious sign that this has a broad strategic aim to it. And then up in uh, New York, I mean, the Stormy Daniels hush money thing, that's that's a misdemeanor, right? That is probably the worst of all the cases legally, because what they're actually doing in that case is extending a state criminal claim into the federal arena past the statute of limitations. And they're making three or four very technical legal arguments that they should be able to do this. But I don't agree with any of them. And I, st I still think I'm pretty confident with the law book. So I, I'm not sure what the aim of that case is. I think some of these people like Bragg and James really just wanted to make names for themselves as like, we are the, the young, aggressive, black prosecutors that were willing to take down this crooked president and save democracy which is a phrase that keeps recurring every damn time these people talk about Trump. Like, we are the bulwark of democracy. Every time you see a black woman, thank her for saving democracy. So I'm not sure about the... Actually, I am pretty sure about the seriousness of the charges. Almost none of these charges would have been brought in any other context. I mean, this sort of, like, you theoretically committed some act that could have been a crime under another system of law eight years ago... I mean, how many rapes do they have each year in New York? Like, that's that's not something that would have occurred. The idea is, I think you're right, it's to break and humiliate Trump, to make him ineligible to run for president, uh, to give him a couple months in an unpleasant jail where the agents sit in the next cell, maybe to make him beg Biden or DeSantis for 
a pardon so he doesn't go. I mean, that's the idea. Like here is the here's your Messiah now kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, right. So let's switch topics here a little bit. Um, since Biden decided he's all of a sudden Donald Trump when it comes to the border and he's going to build a wall mm-hmm. uh, and just happened to do this after he let in, let's say around 10 million, to be frank, illegal immigrants. And the Democrat Party moved to, um, again, let's be frank, uh, make certain changes in the most vital swing state, Pennsylvania, to make it easier for people who are not legal U.S. citizens to vote in our elections. Do you think it is likely that that is actually going to happen? I think that at some point this is going to be a lot of these. So there's a deep background thing that I've thought for years which is that a lot of the things we're seeing from the left now began as pure virtue signaling among upper middle class white people. Like, I don't really think the whole idea of like whites are evil, society is racist, was something that when it began in like gender studies departments, black business class people were really ever supposed to hear. Um, But, you know, we have ears too. And I think people began taking this seriously. So like down road from the Robin D'Angelo's and so on down the line. You I know get, you're a fan. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, she's a, yeah. I, I actually really think it'd be funny to go to a party with or on a date with Robin D'Angelo. It's just like the, oh. the projection there is so wild that it would be it, the hilarity would be easily worth it. But <laughs> just but I mean, be like, along that, for the ride. Yeah, just I mean, like I I wonder if she'd be able to resist telling me black jokes and asking like if I still thought she was cool and but like. The whole thing, though, is that down the road from the real first wave of these people, like the Judith Butlers, the Howard Zins, so on down the line, that's where you started seeing the Kendys and the Coateses. Even D'Angelo yeah. was writing before Kendy, if I recall correctly. So I think that these ideas, which began as rebel signaling, started being taken very seriously by people they weren't necessarily intended for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of these debates today um, center on things that were originally proposed by radical academia, sometimes black, 90% of the time white, that no one was ever supposed to take seriously, like reparations. Um, the idea that illegal immigrants should be treated as illegal citizens, I think goes back to the writer of The Bridge is My Back, Gloria Anzaldúa, maybe. But this, this is stuff that's been proposed in academia for a while, it's now surfacing in reality. And yeah, I think if we decide to let in a bunch of illegal immigrants and pretend that they're asylum seekers, just in practical terms, there's going to be some question about what to do with them. Like, do they get driver's licenses? Because if not, every time you hop behind the wheel and drive to your construction gig or whatever, you're breaking the law. So, I mean, there's there's going to be some compromise around that. And then in many states, if you register, you pointed this out earlier. If you register for a license, you get registered to vote. So is there really someone in Central City, Philadelphia, that's combing through these records a second time to make sure everyone's in the country legally? Isn't that a sanctuary city that can't check? So I, I think in practice, there there is an obvious strategic goal behind this. It may not be very explicit, but of course, if you get far more people that aren't supposed to be here, but that are voting, which party does that benefit? I mean, I, I don't think Democratic you know, local chieftains are unaware of that. Right. They have to be. Uh, aware of it and orchestrating it. As far as I see, the growing Hispanic population in the United States, they're each being courted in different strategies by the Democrats and Republicans. And the Republicans, I think, have a long game. If they have a game at all, they're kind of late to the table. Um, The Democrats are very clear and out front. They're going to give stuff. 
they're going to give entitlements and so forth. And that's their carrot and stick. Um, it's really transparent. The Republicans is interesting. Um, the Hispanic population does really not like woke. They don't like far progressive politics and they're kind of starting to show matriculation movement toward the GOP. I find that an interesting long game issue and it kind of, it might backfire on the Democrats. What do you think? Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that the assumption of the Democrats and the assumption of the alt-right are pretty much identical. And that assumption is there's something unique about white people defined in our meaningless American way that includes like Lebanese folks and Italian Americans and Sicilians and Jews and Irishmen and so on. But there's something unique about white people that makes only whites suited for a certain kind of civilized conservative society. So as we get more minorities, things are going to move left like the people of the sun are going to invariably back socialism. This is just arguing on Twitter today. Like this is what almost every like alti dissident right kid thinks like, why is America going to go downhill? All these Asians. I'm just looking at like the crime and SAT data. And it's like, I, I don't know about that. Even Caucasian Hispanics, like live as someone who lives in Appalachia, I don't see any evidence of that. I don't see any evidence of a population performance decline. But that's the argument of one side and the horseshoe fitting again. That's also the argument of the other side that, the emerging democratic majority, as Teixeira put it, is going to to rule for 50 years. The reality, I mean, at the bluntest, most cynical level, I think a GOP pitch to Hispanics would just be sort of like, you're white now. Like, they don't have to, they don't have to racialize it, but just like, you're a middle-class, tax-paying Catholic citizen with a great wife. You've got four kids. So whose policies make more sense for you? This is their pitch to middle-class black guys, too, by the way. But does it make more sense to allow illegal immigration from never never do well cousins you never much liked does it make more sense to allow crime in the streets from blacks and poor whites by the right. way it's not mostly hispanics anymore in most cities but does it make more sense to allow that or does it make more sense to vote with us for your new flag patriotism the auto plant coming to town and i think a lot of hispanics in particular are going to be very moved by that pitch like we're mm -hmm. americans now these are our economic interests these are interests when it comes to crime let, let's switch a little bit. Like the GOP is yeah. polling at around 40% among Hispanics right now, if I recall correctly. And where have they historically polled? Oh, I mean, well, this is, again, something prior to 9-11 and the rise of what we think of as kind of the dissident, right? I mean, starting with Pat Buchanan, but going through the things we we're seeing about Obama. I mean, obviously, Arabs stopped voting for the uh, GOP. Muslims used to be a 56% Republican majority because we were at war with Arab countries for 20 years. I mean, like I, you would have seen similar things with Caucasians, probably had we fought a war with Italy that spanned more than a decade. I mean, at least in that that demographic population. But prior to that, there really were not, except for the black community, major partisan shifts within a lot of minority groups. I think Asians were on the left. I've, I've never really looked in depth at that data. But how Hispanics voted depended on what state they lived in. Uh, Cubans and even other Hispanic Americans in Florida were very conservative. A lot of Texas Hispanics right. were very conservative. Right. What you normally see with Hispanics is after two to three generations, the Hispanic patterns of behavior tend to match much of the rest of the population. Certainly the white and black population in the same states, where you're talking about Arizona, Texas, so on in terms of test scores and the like. So, I mean, I don't I don't think there was a centuries long pattern of democratic alliance on the part of Mexican-Americans or something like that. That's something that over the past 20 years has probably intensified as there's been this very intentional association of the Republicans with racism. 
Okay, Some so what, be- what's going to win out? Is it going to be handouts or is it going to be cultural alignment? Where Where is the Hispanic population going to go, GOP or Democrat? Uh, I think GOP down the road. I mean, there's going to have to be movement on both sides. Like the Republicans, I'll say this bluntly, like the Republicans are going to have to denounce actual racism. Like every time I talk to my conservative boys that I play basketball or golf with, there's all this denial of like, yeah, and no need for whining. No one actually feels that way. You know, just compete. That's what we're about over here. But if you actually log on to X or for that matter, Facebook, you can see like there's a pro there's a page with about 150,000 followers called blacks taking L's like blacks taking losses. You've really seen in that era since kind of the SJWs versus the alt-right began in maybe 2010, a rise in actual trackable racism. You know, I mean, you hear terms like the six gorillion, the idea that the world is going to decline rather than increase because most of the people in growing societies, Nigeria, India, are not white. And I think the GOP is going to have to denounce that, which is a sizable but still very fringe uh, perspective. But they're going to have to say, well, no, we don't want any affiliation with this in order to appeal to, you know, a more diverse group of voters. And that's going to piss off some of their base. Not just racist, by the way, but people who oppose political correctness and censorship. Sure. This is one of the things that bothers me so much about the SJW movement, the D'Angelo's, the Kendi's and so forth. We have a hard enough time in civilization fighting against actual conscious racism. You know, and then to make the concept of racism as this unconscious, you know, implicit bias concept. It's like, folks, do you have any idea how hard it is to fight actual brazen, conscious, awakening racism that people hold as actual thought through beliefs? (laughs) We should start there. Let's get the actual avowed racists to question their positions on conscious racism. And then sometime down the road, if you want to have a little Maoist uh, struggle session about implicit bias, feel free. But let's start with the actual problem. Um, yeah, they've kind of I, made it much more difficult to address. I totally agree. And I, I also think another point that I have to make there, since I just called out one side, but like as an honest guy who's on the right, if anything, he, one of the issues with social justice activism is that to the average smart working class white kid, it just sounds like racism. And there's almost certainly, uh, almost certainly a great deal of the actual prejudice we see today is a backlash to this kind of stuff to like being made to privilege walk in your class as a young white kid, being told you're automatically an oppressor. I mean, just all of this bullshit, like this unfalsifiable nonsense from people like Kendi, which, by the way, also probably increases that perception some people have that black people are on average stupid. I mean, when you listen to some of Ibram Kendi's arguments, like, well, the only two explanations for any gap between people are genetic inferiority and racism. I mean, I've had high school sophomores that are auditing my class as part of our co-teaching program say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's just stupid is a word that's often used. So I think both in terms of its sheer idiocy and how prejudiced a lot of it is, like that kind of reverse constant bigotry is is almost certainly causing a lot of the backlash we see. Like if we're going to have group identities, you can't tell working class Irish and Italian kids, they can't have a white identity. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like they go to the same school as their black buddies. If anything, they take more bullying. There's no logical reason anyone would accept that. So, yeah, I mean, I I think that obviously the right has to reject the crazy Kendi bullshit, but they also have to start saying like, look, blacks taking L's does not speak for our party. We don't necessarily think that if you show a bisexual woman in a book, that's grooming. 
you know, this sort of thing. Like there has to be a set line of like, these are the issues, crime, immigration, taxes, get rid of social programs to a large extent. And yeah, I think that'll appeal to most Asians and many Hispanics. Right. So a, a centrist, reasonable party that leans right, you think is a winning formula. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what we've seen with every one of the most significant American presidents, almost. I mean, Reagan, Eisenhower, you could probably throw Lincoln in there, Big Bill Clinton, I mean, was a new Democrat. So I think almost everyone agrees with the center right on right on certain issues like crime. Most people, I mean, I'll do some fake empathy online sometimes, but most people, when they see like a child rapist or just like that, a hell of it, kill him. You know, most people feel uh, a, a certain very specific way about illegal immigration. It's like dealing with uninvited house guests. You don't actually want to machine gun them down or anything like that. These crazy things you hear, but you certainly want to put up a big fence that stops them from entering wherever you are. Uh, most people are skeptical of government surveillance, the, the libertarian position that the right has adopted. Most people really don't want abortion after 10 or 12 weeks which I think would be a mainstream GOP position, at least at the state level. It's what it is in Europe. So I think those are sweeping issues that can cross racial lines very easily. The only reason that second and third generation Hispanics are still voting Democrat at over 50 percent, five plus percent over, is this perception of the other group is racist. They're not going to negotiate with us. They want Latinos out of this country, so on. And there, there's a lot of polling that shows this. So, Professor Riley, who's going to win in 2024? That's a tough one. Um, I, I don't think Trump's going to be allowed to win. And by that, I don't mean like the, the voting machines are going to be reprogrammed so that a Democratic vote counts as two votes or something that childish. But what I mean is that Donald Trump is currently under indictment in four different states. He's facing 91 charges, and most of them are the kind of charges that can be intensified. Things can be added to them. Um, I think if Donald Trump is a hit of Joe Biden in September of next year, it's not it's not above the line of belief that he would just be arrested. Like one of the cases would be concluded. He's out on, you know, supervision while he's appealing and he's found to have committed some kind of minor offense and is locked up. I mean, or something like that, or states begin dropping him from the ballot. That's what I think during, is going to happen during the next primary season, which you brought up like. So I would I would give the I would give the uh, the edge in odds to Biden if his opponent is Trump, like 60, 40. If DeSantis mm -hmm. or anyone else ran against Biden, I think Biden has virtually no chance of winning. Right. That's what I said in, a, in an episode prior. Almost any other candidate would be an easy win. And um, but Trump seems to be this default candidate. He's a, like a tribal leader to his base. Uh, he, only he will do. Um, and I guess if only he will do, Biden is their king. Uh, so what happens if Trump is arrested on a societal level? I mean, I think a couple of Democratic politicians get shot. I mean, like, I'm not calling for that, you know, for YouTube, watching the people uh, for, you know, censors or anything. But I think that if Trump. So what you said there is actually pretty significant and I think pretty accurate as a politics guy. Trump's base doesn't just like the GOP. In fact, many of them aren't Republicans. They love Trump. They right. feel that Trump is the guy who came down from his golden penthouse and spoke to them. And this really gets into the race and class issues that we're talking about, because except for Native American Indians, it would be difficult to find a group that's more genuinely marginalized in the USA than rural poor whites. 
Right. I mean, like we we talk about marginalization and we're talking about like gay club kids and upper middle class blacks. And it's sort of like, no, you, you see those people all the time. Certainly if you live in a city. I mean, those two groups together are 60 percent of the people in every advert on television. But you really don't see like the other half of the white population, if that makes sense. Like the guy who lives in a trailer next to his black buddy and makes a living cutting softwood. And Trump went to a lot of those places. I mean, he went to that small Ohio town where the train full of toxic chemicals derailed and the the fireball that came up from it looked like a nuclear explosion. And he was shaking hands and he bought everyone dinner. I mean, so whether or not Trump actually cares about poor white people that lives in what he that live in what he almost certainly thinks of as flyover land, he presents it well. He's a good leader. And yeah, those people are, are rallying behind him. So what happens if like Joe Biden's G-men throw Trump in jail? I mean, I think we'll probably see a few genuine riots from the right side of the fence, something we haven't seen in a while. Like, yeah. I think we may see some targeted assassinations. Again, not calling for that. But I think you'll see an extraordinary backlash of anger. And you'll see a lot of people just quietly go home and hate and wait for a candidate that's more intense than Trump to come along. Mm-hmm. Mm. Grim outlooks. I think you're absolutely right. The um, the disdain that both parties have shown for poor people in general, uh, they've used certain racial demographics of poor people as political pawns for years. But I would say that their overall disdain for the poor overall, you know, and especially poor whites, as you say, has been so palpable. And Trump, as you quite rightly mentioned, almost bestowed a sense of value on them by coming down and and. Um, calling them special and so forth, and, and also doing decent things like going to their communities. I, I think there was value to that. So I guess he's their guy is what you're saying. And there's nothing that's going to shake that. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably correct. Like there is the reality of who'd be more likely to win the election. Like, again, I think that if Ron DeSantis won the primary and ran with Nikki Haley as his vice president or something like that, there's really no way that that ticket doesn't beat Biden in the general election. Right. Uh, I mean, Joe Biden, yeah, Joe Biden is not alive. No, like, he I died. Mean, he, Biden died in 87, by the way. He's been kept up on stilts with a marionette ever since. I don't know if you know that, but that's actually what happened. <laughs> shoot amphetamine to a corpse and move the arms. I mean, and it's, that's right. But like we've all known like an elderly person that's dealing with senile dementia or something. And it's, it's not cool. And if he weren't seeking out the spotlight, I wouldn't make fun of it. But like Joe Biden will regularly get on stage for major photo ops with like the Israeli ambassador mm-hmm. and just wander away. Right. And he'll have to be guided back. Like people will put a hand behind his oh back and they'll push him over to the podium and he'll shake hands mm. and they'll stumble away again. And like watching this, if you've so ever had an, an, oh, yeah, an older mentally wounded relative, like, you know, what's going on. Yeah. So when people say this stuff, like, you know, I met with Biden in a private meeting and he was just sensilitating and alive. Like, unless they gave the guy like nine Ritalin first. Like, no, he wasn't. We all know <laughs> what's going on. We all know Biden's barely functional. We all know the vice president is not all that brilliant and was picked because she was the only black woman in the race that met his qualifications. So there, there are a lot of real problems with the, the Biden ticket and the entire Biden situation that we're, we're both very aware of. Yeah, yeah. So Ron DeSantis wins easily, so on. But The question is, can anyone in the GOP primary, where only 20% of Americans are going to vote, beat Trump? And Trump right now has 67% of the Republican vote. He's not even bothering to debate. Everyone else is just slapping each other around on this little stage on like Fox business. Like they didn't make the major network. And Trump is just sitting at home. Streamed on Rumble. Yeah. 
No, it's exactly right. It got like 3 million views. They put it on YouTube. I mean, like I've had my biggest video on uh, any social platform, I think is at 1.5 mm-hmm. million. So it's wow. just, this is kind of sad. Uh, I like DeSantis a lot. I think he'll learn from this. He'll probably win in uh, 28. But it looks like it's going to be Trump that comes out of that that entire crap pile. I don't, I don't see how it's not. If it wasn't Trump, who would be your pick of a candidate? Well, I mean, my pick of a candidate wouldn't be Trump. I mean, it would be almost, but it, like, so if Trump does not win, if unfortunately right. he I mean, has out of the remaining attack, who are vying for yeah. this nonsense, who do you think you would choose if Trump was out of the picture? Ron DeSantis. I mean, like, Ron DeSantis. So DeSantis is not necessarily the type of conservative uh, voter that I am. I mean, I once heard someone say jokingly when I worked on the Marcus Evans sales floor in Chicago that there were like, steak cigar and suit people that sometimes vote republican which is where i put myself and most of my friends and then there were like frequent church goers that have some strong attitudes about premarital right. sex and that hunt a lot that vote republican and i'll sometimes right. get them out in the woods with a gun but that's not my category of my friend group so i have some issues with desantis about some things that he's done i mean he did pass a six-week abortion ban that would be challenged very heavily in a general election whether you support it or not I mean, he spends a lot of time doing things like fighting with Disney World about whether they have gay people in their cartoons. Like, I don't really give a shit. Like, trans actual presentation to in- vulnerable children is a bit different, but I don't I don't think we're going to see Minnie Mouse have a lesbian love affair anytime soon. So DeSantis spends a lot of time on that. He knows it works. But in general, is just a very competent governor. DeSantis is the guy who kept his state open during COVID. And gave really the rest of the USA and Canada a model if you didn't want to use Sweden for how to do that. I mean, I, I think he's easily the best of the candidates. And I would just pick the second best candidate. Someone like Nikki Haley, um, Vivek, if I had a sense of humor, maybe I, Tim Scott. But I would, I I would like run with the second highest polling person. And I, like I would, again, smash it in the general. Sure. The problem with DeSantis is he comes across like such a goober. You know, he gets up there and he goes, well, what I want to do is, nah, 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 and, he, and he's done. And uh, there's there's nothing that comes. He even does that lizard smile where the eyes don't move. He just does the he just moves the mouth like, all right, come on, assholes, I'm going to smile at you. Buy it, you know. <laughs> so. Well, for me, I've never been much of a like. I think that I, although I mean, like I'm a nerd too, as well as a bro. I don't, so that, this doesn't bother me much. But I think that like I and most people I know are people you would want to have a beer with. But like, I don't give a shit, really. Like, what my accountant isn't. Sure, you know, like no, when I. My problem with this is that he he doesn't appeal to the listeners and viewers the way that he could. You know, he doesn't yeah. really come across in this charismatic manner. That's my only problem with this: is that he can't garner votes because of that. I don't care yeah. if he's bright and shiny. I, I prefer a president who wasn't, frankly. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that's the thing. Like in the, I mean, this goes back to in political science, we use the analogy of the Kennedy-Nixon debate in sophomore year classes, where John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, who are both very serious men, both war veterans, as I recall, so on Brooks Brothers down, they mm-hmm. uh, they had a three hour long debate that was played on the radio and that was played on television. And everyone that heard the debate on the radio said, well, these are both top candidates, but the older, more experienced Nixon won the debate by 10 percentage points. He kicked Kennedy's ass. Everyone that watched the debate on TV said that Kennedy won because we've all seen John F. Kennedy is like six, four, got the pompadour. He was blue suit as opposed to Nixon's yeah. funereal black Flashy guy. Yeah. Tie with an American flag stick pin. So he mistress in the audience. So he wins the televised debate. And ever since that point, I think there has been this idea of not just we want charisma, because I think you and I are both serious adults and don't care, but you're not going to win without charisma. Uh, unfortunately, we're seeing that that's probably true. 
Uh, Trump is, like I said, 60 plus percent. Vivek Ramashwani, who I've talked to, who's a, uh, online, but who's a, a funny guy, an enjoyable guy, but who's not going to be president. is no, like of course right not. Behind. Yeah, he's like an he's a tech entrepreneur who jumped into the race because he saw that there was 10 percent of the vote to be picked up. And he's made himself the equivalent of, you know, a half billion in media views and stock increases and so on. Good for him. But like Vivek is not going to be president. Um, I, I he, wish he was more viable. I mean, because he has such a nice, cohesive uh, cultural narrative to offer. You know, a revitalization think, of American spirit. I love that approach. Yeah, I mean, I think we both spent some time in the business world. I think my big issue with Vivek is I don't believe anything you say. <laughs> and like Vivek, if you're listening, I love you. But I mean, like, it's just I, like the stuff he says is just bullshit. Like uh, very often, like what we're, we're going to do is we're going to invade Mexico. I mean, he said we're going to pursue over the border and attack cartel targets. Like, and I'm thinking about this as a political scientist. It's like, no, you're not. That's not going to happen. You know, like and Chris, Chris Christie d- does torpedo everybody. And that's his job on the stage. But um, he did have a moment where he got Vivek, where he said, you're over here sounding like chat GPT. Well, and yeah, then... All you had to do was listen to Vivek, and he go. He starts going. I have a vision for America, mm-hmm. and uh, he even enunciates the way that uh, you know an automated uh, speakerphone. <laughs> I think Vivek is younger than me, and I just crossed the forty line. I mean, it, like it's He's I, an impressive I guy. Think- I'm envious. I'm just trying to bring him down a little because I haven't gotten there, and that's how I deal with my frustration. <laughs> well, that's what I said earlier. Like, I think anyone who's substantially richer than me is a crook. Like yeah, if you're worth like right. two, and I'm I'm joking, but like there is a level of one people are jealous, and two that's probably true. Where if you're worth like two million dollars, if you liquefy everything, people are like, okay, he's just a well-off guy in the neighborhood. If you're worth like fifty, and you're running around like faux running for president, and so on. People are gonna I got some real antipathy a little now. more aggressively, right? Yeah, there's gonna, there's gonna be some jealousy. I don't think I'm jealous of Vivek. I just think that it's easy to be the guy who proposes the grandiose, crazy stuff that can't happen. Like, I remember even just this is a stupid uh, analog, but I was running once I ran for student body president at Northern Illinois University, did pretty well. But I think I finished like third or fourth out of a field of guys. But I remember that one of the guys who finished a position ahead of me, uh, Andy something, would just say things like what we're going to do is get rid of the Greek system at this university. And it was just like, well, that's not going to happen. But I understand oh, yeah. why. Vivek is going to dismantle the FBI. Did you know that? He's going to erase the FBI. That's yeah, gonna he's going to fire right? all 87,000 newly hired IRS agents who are on three-year contracts. And it's just like, Vivek, you and I have both read a contract. Like, that's not going to happen. It so it, 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 to some extent, is easier to be the guy who can do that. Vivek can do that. He's got the gift of Blarney. Um, Trump can do that. And Trump might mean 10% of it. Like, Trump's done some things no one expected, like go to North Korea. Ron DeSantis isn't really built that way. So I, I if I were DeSantis, I would be outraged. Like, I'm surrounded by these bullshitters like Trump and Vivek situationally and Christie and so on. I'm just saying things like, when I was in Florida, we actually banned everything that you describe as woke. And everyone's just like, politely claps once. (laughs) You know, so there's, DeSantis can say something like, I passed the Stop Woke Act. I did it. I'm the governor of the fourth largest state. And Vivek can say, well, in my book, I have a chapter about how I'll do even more. And the audience (laughs) will treat these two things as equivalent. And it's kind of like, Vivek, you didn't actually do that, though. You're, you're you see, you've published several books. You could make these claims. You could have fanfare like this. This sounds to me like an excellent world because it it uh, paves the road for the rest of us to make outlandish claims about ourselves. And so, okay, Professor, as we close in on our final minute here, minutes, is there anything else you're paying attention to that we need to have on our, on our scales uh, that we need to be weighing? 
Um, we, we already, well, I mean, I think there are a couple things out there like is AI. Well, actually, I think one of the things that's out there on a very broad scale is a sweeping technological change that's going to end most current debates. Like, I mean, I've uh, done some writing in kind of the race and IQ space. I'm a culturalist. I don't think it's all racism or primarily genes that cause these group gaps. But I mean, I've, I've been reading some of the new papers about uh, CRISPR technology and GWAS technology. And pretty soon, I mean, you'll be able to select your children almost at the level of which sperm becomes a baby. I mean, you'll be able to, if you choose to, um, humanely kill, I refuse to use another word, um, fetuses that are very likely to have Down syndrome, they're very likely to have certain genetic defects. This could happen in the case of things that are more prevalent among blacks, like sickle cell, things that are more prevalent among whites, certain mental conditions. And this ties into, for example, Elon Musk's Neuralink, where he's saying he's going to put what you call tutorial implant toots in human mm. brains. And they're now recruiting the first round of volunteers. And I, I will say I would not be in the first round of volunteers for that. <laughs> but I mean, so pretty soon we're going to see what the Internet was for a generation or two earlier a sweeping epical change in human abilities. I mean, you're going to see people genetically selecting their children and then putting computers in their heads. They'll start them off with a baseline IQ of, say, 110, 120. So that's something that's that's on the horizon, at least from the, the academic reading I've been doing. So the world's mm. going to change. Stuff that actually matters on a yep. cellular level in our world. Maybe we'll talk about that when it becomes more in the forefront. Okay, Professor Wilfred Riley, author of excellent books, including Taboo, and one upcoming next year called Lies My Liberal uh, Teacher Told Me. Is that it? I never get it right. Yeah, it's Lies My Liberal Teacher Told Me. All the books have uh, kind of exotic and provocative titles. But yeah, this one looks at the whether the, the last 40 years in the school system, which we almost never talk about. We always pretend that Emmett Till just died when you look at mainstream center-left media. In reality, a completely different block of people. I mean, the urban center left has been in charge since I've been alive. Mm -hmm. So I look at many of their major claims from uh, Native American Indian education to pleasure-based sex ed. Is this stuff any more valid than what came before it? And almost always the answer is no, in my opinion. Okay, we'll be looking forward to that. And perhaps we'll be coming on again sometime soon. Thanks for joining us on Real Clear. Take care, man. Well,